You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. of the 18th City Lit Festival. And yes, we can all say we survived 2020 and we're bringing literature to you in the best way possible. Today, we are very excited to have you join us for City Lit Festival Reimagined. This year's festival is virtual. It's a month long event with special events each week and day long programming on Saturday, March 20th. But before we begin tonight's program, we recognize and acknowledge we are currently on the traditional lands of the Piscataway people who have stewarded throughout generations. To make this a more meaningful practice, if you live in this region, we respectfully ask you to consider learning more about the Piscataway Conway tribe, the people where the rivers blend. Every community owes its existence and vitality to generations from around the world who contributed their energy to making the history that led to this moment. Some were brought here against their will. Some were drawn to leave their distant homes in hope of a better life and some have lived on this land for generations. Join us in honoring and acknowledging the original inhabitants of the land we are on, as well as the enslaved people who built the country and structures that make up our modern North American landscape. We pay respect to the elders, past and present. We say this as the year's festival is titled Words on the Winds of Change. And as part of that change for the better, we ask that you invest in our nation's history with a way to acknowledge it in your daily lives. Can I just say how particularly difficult last year was fighting all kinds of things politically, spiritually, and in the realm of how to stay whole and safe when you feel as if you are in full body attack. We hope if words of change and promise aren't in your vocabulary today, that you take them home with you today safely. That you get what you need out of this festival meant to inspire you, meant to make you think of a different world and rethink the way we do story meant to examine the state of Baltimore and to reference who's and what's emitted from the literary landscape of children's and young adult literature. We hope this and the events throughout this month engage you and empower you to pick up that pen and poet your story, write that essay and submit that novel, given what you experience here. There are so many poets and writers who rightfully deserved to be on this stage whose work couldn't fit in the time we have together, but we celebrate anyone and everyone who is brave enough to produce work and for those who published this year and last. City Lit may be small, but we've been told we carry a big fist. We are here for you and ask that you continue to support us in the best way you can so we can continue doing this good work. Tonight's event is the first of many. Please be sure to visit citylitproject.org or prattlibrary.org for more detailed festival information. We encourage you to take advantage and register for our one-on-one 30-minute editorial critique sessions with six esteemed editors in this region. Register for the three sessions of Joy and Grief Workshop with limited participants and for a rare masterclass with George Saunders. Many of you have been working in isolation and what better way to get the sense of your work than through one of the esteemed editors and a master teacher who's committed to reviewing your work. We also introduce a new festival highlight, the Writer's Room, an informal craft talk designed for you to ask questions about craft with our featured guest authors. It's informal, it's a Zoom meeting, but these authors will see your face and engage with you, writer to writer. Tonight it's with Jenny and Emily. Up next is Terrence Hayes and a special Poet to Poet with Nikki Finney. 
You don't want to wish you had, you want to be there. The success of this feature, this new feature, wholly depends on what you bring to the conversation in terms of questions. So come prepared and come hungry for the work. I'd like to thank each of our wonderful sponsors who got us through this year, all of whom are listed on our festival website, but include the Maryland State Arts Council, Maryland Humanities Council, BOPA, Creative Baltimore Fund, Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation, T. Rowe Price Foundation, and to all, and let me say this, and Insight 180, our incredible graphic designers, and to all the individual donors out there who have given to us over the years. But most especially tonight, we are incredibly thankful to have partners like the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and personally for me to have a warrior like Tracy Diamond, who remains a treasure to me. Please give a warm welcome to Pratt's Adult Services Coordinator, Tracy Diamond. Thank you so much, Carla. I mean, it's just so wonderful to work with City Lit every year. And it's incredibly true what you said that City Lit project has such a huge impact. And it's done with a very small group. Um, you're spearheading all of it. So I do encourage everyone to attend as many events as you can as possible and to continue to support them uh, because it's an honor for the library to be a part of the festival with you and to work with you throughout the year. So hooray for the kickoff of City Lit Festival. Um, and it, you know, it was crushing to cancel the festival last year. Um, it was one year ago, just about, that we had to make the decision. Um, none of us had really heard of Zoom yet. And so although we'd love to be gathered together in Central Library to celebrate literature, uh, we really hope all of you joining us today and throughout the month feel the virtual warmth. Like Carla said, we have events for all types of literature month long. So please visit citylitproject.org and prattlibrary.org for the details. Uh, before introductions, I do have some virtual logistics for tonight. If you're watching in Zoom, please post your questions for our speakers in the chat. Um, and if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. We'll be monitoring both. Um, and a survey will also be posted near the end of the program. Your feedback helps us serve you and continue to bring all of these literary events to you. Sorry, my assistant just joined me. Um, and I also want to remind everyone about the new festival highlight that Carla mentioned, the Writer's Room. If you haven't registered for the Writer's Room tonight yet, I will be posting the Eventbrite link once I'm off screen. Um, so those attending tonight's webinar who wish to engage further can register through that link and you'll still be able to get the Zoom information. So today we are so thrilled to host Emily St. John Mandel, Jenny Offal, uh, moderated by Marion Winnick. We also hope that you'll support our festival bookstore partner, local independent, the Ivy Bookshop, and order your copy of the speaker's books directly from them. I'll also be posting a link to their website in the chat. Jenny Offal is the author of the novels Last Things, a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and a finalist for the LA Times First Book Prize. Department of Speculation, which was shortlisted for the Folio Prize, the Penn Faulkner Award, and the International Dublin Award, and most recently, Weather, an instant New York Times bestseller. She lives in upstate New York and teaches um, at 
Bard University and the Low Residency Program at Queen's University. Emily St. John Mandel's five novels include The Glass Hotel and Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award, and has been translated into 32 languages. She lives in New York City with her husband and daughter. University of Baltimore professor Marion Winnick is the author of The Big Book of the Dead and a winner of the 2019 Towson Prize for Literature. Among her 10 other books are First Comes Love and Above Us Only Sky. Her award-winning Bohemian Rhapsody column appears monthly at Baltimore Fishbowl and her essays have been published in the New York Times Magazine, The Sun and elsewhere. A board member of the National Book Critics Circle, she writes book reviews for People, Newsday, The Washington Post, and Kirkus Reviews, and she also hosts the weekly reader podcast at WYPR. So please give a virtual welcome to Emily, Jenny, and Marion. Um, hi, everyone. We're so happy to be with you and um, so happy to welcome Jenny and Emily. And both of whom, if you ever listen to the Weekly Reader, have been featured multiple times. In fact, there's been a Jenny Awful special on the Weekly Reader. Um, and um, we're going to start with some readings um, so that you can get into the spirit and the mood of these incredible books. And we're going in alphabetical order. So Emily will be first. Will you read to us? I would love to. Um, first of all, let me say what a pleasure it is to be a part of this. Like everybody, I wish we could do this in person, but it is nice that we can at least do this. I'm going to read a very brief section from The Glass Hotel, my most recent novel. This is actually the first chapter of the book that I started writing. And I think all you need to know going in is that it's about an office staff that is engaged in a massive financial crime. We had crossed a line, that much was obvious, but it was difficult to say later exactly where that line had been. Or perhaps we'd all had different lines or crossed the same line at different moments. Simone, the new receptionist, didn't even know the line was there until the day before Al-Qaedas was arrested, which is to say the day of the 2008 holiday party, when Enrico came around to our desks in the late morning and told us that Al-Qaedas wanted us assembled in the 17th floor conference room at one o'clock. This had never happened before. The arrangement was something we did, not something we talked about. Al-Qaedas came in at 1.15, sat at the head of the table without making eye contact with anyone and said, we have liquidity problems. There was no air in the room. I've arranged for a loan from the brokerage company, he said. We'll route it through London and record the wire transfers as income from European trading. A knock on the door just then, and Simone came in with the coffee. No one was sure where to look. Simone had only been on the job for three weeks and wasn't party to the arrangement, but it was immediately obvious to her that something was amiss. Only Ron returned her smile. Joelle stared blankly at her, as did Alcatus. Oscar was looking very fixedly at the legal pad on the table before him, and it seemed to Simone that there were tears in his eyes. Enrico and Harvey were staring into space. Simone finished pouring the coffee, closed the door, and waited in the corridor instead of walking away. It seemed to her that no one spoke for an unnaturally long time. Look, Alcatus said finally, we all know what we do here. 
Later, some of us would pretend that we didn't hear this, but Simone's testimony would echo the accounts of several of us who did hear it. Some of us who pretended not to hear it would also pretend not to know there was a line. I'm as much a victim as Mr. Alcatus's investors, Joelle told the judge, who disagreed and sentenced her to 12 years. But then at the far opposite end of the spectrum was Harvey Alexander, who would agree wholeheartedly with Simone's testimony and go on to confess to things he hadn't even been accused of in a kind of ecstasy of guilt. But for those of us who did hear what Al-Qaeda said in that meeting, those of us who admitted to hearing it, that statement represented the final crossing, or perhaps more accurately, the moment when it was no longer possible to ignore the topography and pretend that the border hadn't already been crossed. Of course, we all knew what we did there. We weren't idiots, except for Ron. We shuffled our papers, stared into space. We imagined leaving the country, Oscar, or made firm, actionable plans to leave the country, Enrico, or decided fatalistically that it was too late to go anywhere, Harvey, or indulged in the fantastical notion that somehow everything would work itself out, Joel. Ron glanced around, confused. He often seemed confused. The rest of us had noticed that about him. And it seemed he actually didn't know what we did here, which was baffling in retrospect. What did he think we were doing, if not running a Ponzi scheme? Still, there it was. He looked around in the silence, cleared his throat, and said, well, we have so much trading activity with the London office already, though. The silence that followed that remark was, if possible, even worse than the silence that had preceded it. No trade had ever been executed through the London office because the London office was comprised of a single employee with five email addresses whose job consisted primarily of wiring funds to New York to give the appearance of European trading activity. That's an excellent point, Ron, Harvey said. He spoke kindly and with a certain sadness. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Emily. Uh, Jenny, will you read to us as well? Um, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning too. And I, I, um, I'm also so happy to be a part of this. Thank you for having me um, for the City Light Project. Thank you, Carla and Tracy and Marion, Emily. Um, I'm going to read um, just the opening of the novel. And really, I think all you need to know is that the, the main character, Lizzie, who's telling the story, um, works in a university library. In the morning, the one who is mostly enlightened comes in. There are stages, and she is in the second to last, she thinks. This stage can be described only by a Japanese word. Bucket of black paint, it means. I spend some time pulling books for the doomed adjunct. He's been working on his dissertation for 11 years. I give him reams of copy paper, binder clips, and pens. He's writing about a philosopher I've never heard of. He is minor, but instrumental, he told me. Minor, but instrumental. <laughs> but last night, his wife put a piece of paper on the fridge. Is what you're doing right now making money, it said. The man in the shabby suit does not want his library fines lowered. He is pleased to contribute to our institution. The blonde girl whose nails are bitten to a quick stops by after lunch and leaves with a purse full of toilet paper. 
I brave a theory about vaccinations and another about late capitalism. Do you ever wish you were 30 again? Asked the lonely heart engineer. No, never, I say. I tell him that old joke about going backward. We don't serve time travelers here. A time traveler walks into the bar. On the way home, I pass the lady who sells whirling things. Sometimes when the students are really stoned, they'll buy them. No takers today, she says. I pick out one for my son, Eli. It's blue and white, but blurs to blue in the wind. Don't forget quarters, I remember. At the bodega, Mohan gives me a roll of them. I admire his new cat, but he tells me it just wandered in. He will keep it though, because his wife no longer loves him. I wish you were a real shrink, my husband says. Then we'd be rich. My brother's late, and this after I took a car service so I wouldn't be. When I finally spot Henry, he's drenched. No coat, no umbrella. He stops at the corner, gives change to the woman in the trash bag poncho. My brother told me once that he missed drugs because they made the world stop calling to him. Fair enough, I said. We were at the supermarket. All around us, things tried to announce their true nature, but their radiance was faint and fainter still beneath the terrible music. I try to get him warmed up quickly, soup, coffee. He looks good, I think, clear-eyed. The waitress makes a new pot, flirts with him. People used to stop my mother on the street. What a waste, they'd say. Eyelashes like that on a boy. So now we have extra bread. I eat three pieces while my brother tells me a story about his Narcotics Anonymous meeting. A woman stood up and started ranting about antidepressants. What upset her most was that people were not disposing of them properly. They tested worms in the city sewers and discovered they contained high concentrations of Paxil and Prozac. When birds ate these worms, they stayed closer to home, made more elaborate nests, but appeared unmotivated to mate. But were they happier, I asked him? Did they get more done in a given day? The window in our bedroom is open. You can see the moon if you lean out and crane your neck. The Greeks thought it was the only heavenly object similar to earth, plants and animals 15 times stronger than our own inhabited it. My son comes in to show me something. It looks like a pack of gum, but it's really a trick. When you try to take a piece, a metal spring snaps down on your finger. It hurts more than you think, he tells me. Ow. I tell him to look out the window. That's a waxing crescent, Eli says. He knows as much now about the moon as he ever will, I suspect. At his old school, they taught him a song to remember all its phases. Sometimes he'll sing it for us at dinner, but only if we do not request it. The moon will be fine, I think. No one's worrying about the moon. Thank you. Unmute. Hi. Okay. <laughs> Unmuted. Um, so there's so many different ways to start this conversation, but I think the way I'm going to start it is this. Um, 
you know, when anyone is embarking on a piece of fiction, the, you know, the first question is the voice, how to tell the story. Will it be first person? Will it be third person? Will it be omniscient or limited? And um, uh, both of you have made, I think the choices in this have make a really big effect on how this book plays out for the reader. So can you talk about how you decided to settled on the voice that the book has and how it affects the book? And why don't you start, Jenny? Okay. Um, well, I think voice for me is, um, in many ways, it's just, it, it feels initially like a kind of emotional register uh, that I want the book to be in. And I knew that with this character, Lizzie, um, you know, I'd, I'd written a novel previously that was very interior and it had just a very few characters in it. And I really wanted this to be a, a novel that was more of the city. And I wanted her to be a librarian because I felt like, um, well, librarians just um, see and know everything. I still believe that ever since I was a kid. Um, and so the voice, I wanted her to be kind of um, in some ways um, self-deprecating, but also very um, astute and quick to notice things. Now, in terms of the point of view, I. I find that whatever point of view you pick, whether you pick first person or um, a more omniscient point of view, you always reach a point where that was the wrong point of view. <laughs> and, you know, it's when you're teaching students, they'll often change very abruptly there or like so that you could. But I, I feel that for me, the first person um, point of view, it's just the one that I feel most um, natural in. And um, I think most writers have have one or two um things that they that they go back to because it feels closest to their own way of thought. Hmm. And yet, um, just to follow up, I mean, with Department of Speculation, uh, people really felt that the voice was so autobiographical, whether it wasn't was or wasn't. And yet in whether it's um, so clearly a character, like, is that hmm. something that you thought about? Well, I mean, I sometimes feel like uh, Lizzie is is the same person that the um, other character is if she hadn't um, been a writer, you know, if she if she hadn't been a, a bit of an art monster, um, because I think that um, in terms of like having a one pointed desire for what you think you're going to do with your life, um, Lizzie's much more of someone who kind of drifts into things, and I, a lot of people that I've known. Um, are more like that. And they're often some of the most interesting people I've met because instead of sort of having tunnel vision, um, like someone like me might have, um, they've often been able to kind of slip in and out of a lot of different lives. So in that way, it was wish fulfillment, um, the idea of being a librarian and being somewhere besides sitting alone in my own room all day. Thanks. So Emily, your approach to the point of view in this book, which is quite omniscient. It is quite omniscient. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to say before I get into that, I'm a huge fan of your work, Jenny. And a big part of that is, is the way you use the first person in a way that just feels so natural. And I, I love it. Um, you know, I, I loved what you were just saying about how probably all writers are drawn to one voice or another. I've tried to use the first person over the years and like, I just can't make it stick. It's not really my natural state. Um, with the glass hotel, I use so many different voices. I do use first person very briefly, just for a small number of pages at the very beginning and the very end. Mm -hmm. 
For a while, I go into the plural first person. We had crossed a line, that chapter I just read, which I found really interesting for this particular project because I was writing so much about collective guilt. You know, these are, these are staffers who are perpetuating a massive crime that will cause real and measurable damage to a lot of people. So that idea of the mob mentality, that it's easier to say we crossed a line than I crossed a line, because you'll do things as part of a group that you would never do with a single person, as, as a single person. So it was interesting to echo that idea in the voice. But most of the novel is third person, um, slanted toward the perspective of one character or another. And, you know, I think if I had to choose that, that seems to be my default at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I guess I'm going to ask, I mean, both of you wrote these books, The Glass Hotel and Weather, on the heels of a book that was really a huge success, um, uh, a breakout book, or, and a book that brought you to the attention of so many people, um, in Emily's case, Station Eleven, and um, in Jenny's case, Department of Speculation. Um, these were, uh, you know, it's every writer's dream to have books that hit like these books hit and also they're fantastic books and then also in emily's case you know department of spec i mean um station 11 is about a pandemic so on top of everything else it it, it clicked into the world that we live in now so um i i i'm sure that when you were so anyway my question is what was it like to write this book and to publish this book about. Yeah, and I have a puppy that is also being a big pain in the ass. Oh, now I feel bad that I don't have my dog. Hi. Yeah, but um, Hi. my Hi. question is, what was it like to um, write this book on the heels of this book, of a previous book that was so big, such a big deal? And um, Emily, would you want Jenny to answer first? or um... No, I can jump in. Um, either way. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, um... You know, perhaps it's not a coincidence that it took both me and Jenny six years to publish our next book. Like, it's um, which is fast for me. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, yeah, it was twice as long as Station Eleven took me to write. Um, you know, it's such an extraordinary problem that it's not a problem at all, and I feel nothing but profound gratitude for the success of my previous book. It was the first book that a large number of people had read. And it was the first time that I had this awareness of a kind of invisible audience looking over my shoulder. You know, I'd log into Twitter and it would be like time for at Emily Mandel to write her next book. Log out, you know? <laughs> so um, th- th- there was a kind of pressure there, which to be clear was never imposed by my publishers, but it did exist. There were other, um, you know, other reasons why the Glass Hotel took much longer than my other books. You know, you just met my five-year-old. Um, but yeah, you know, it. I, I think the writing of the book was a little bit slower than my previous books had been, at least in part because of that awareness of an audience, which I had just never had before. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that um, I somehow managed to um, create an impossible pressure on myself, whichever book it is. So with my first book, it was that I was supposedly writing a book for all these years and never finished it. And I knew that at a certain point, no one even believed I ever would finish it. So that was the pressure of like feeling like um, I was just failed and I never would do it. And then with the second book, um, 
I did write a book in between that was um, was a failure that I didn't I, I didn't end up publishing, um, and so for department I remember very distinctly like um, coming out of a room and saying I've just decided to completely um, throw away that book and just take like a few lines from it and start another one and it's just going to be a weird experimental novel but. I'll write some kids books and teach a lot and make money otherwise. <laughs> so this, the success of department uh, was really unexpected to me because I just thought it was a, a really odd book. You know, I just didn't know. I had in my um, heart a hope that like a lot of um, people who were writers or librarians might like it. <laughs> um, but it was, it was actually, you know, quite a wonderful and exciting thing on book tour to get to talk to and meet all sorts of people who'd read the book who all had you know different thoughts about it um it felt kind of astonishing you know i mean to be honest and then i think when it comes to this book i felt very much like oh i don't want to repeat what i've done before but i also don't want to make that mistake where you go so far away from what you're good at um so for me the style the somewhat fragmentary style stayed but the, um, the world was enlarged and the characters um, were more numerous. Um, and that was something that um, I think I did because I was just interested in challenging myself. Mm. Um, and I had an opposite experience that I wrote this book a little bit faster because um, someone gave me money to write it uh, versus uh, the other years. So six years for me is kind of fast, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Well, you can see why. I mean, it's such a it's such a door stopper of a book. You can see why it would take <laughs> years and years. So, um, what I would, you know, both of you have published these books. Not exactly. It, it's a little different as far as the relationship to the pandemic is concerned, because um, weather was a little earlier. Uh, you know, uh, why don't you? Um, rather than me getting it wrong and being embarrassed, discuss the relationship of the publication of your book to the beginning of the pandemic and how that affected what happened. Well, I'm curious, Emily, were you talking about the Glass Hotel and everyone wanted you to go back and talk about Station Eleven? I mean, yeah, totally. You like zeitgeist. Is what I know. I know. Um, yeah, I was getting all these invitations to write op-eds about pandemics and I turned down all of them. Because it just felt kind of gross. Like I was, yeah. you know, monetizing the pandemics, right. the pandemic to like move units of Station Eleven. It was like, ugh. And then I would tell interviewers, or I'd have my publicists tell interviewers that I'd prefer not to discuss the pandemic. I held that line for about a week. You know, I, I never did write the op-eds. But at a certain point, I just had to lean in and embrace the fact that for very valid reasons, everybody wanted to talk about pandemics. So and, Station and Eleven was going to come out. Not everybody, let me just say, everybody wants to talk about Station Eleven because um, you, it, it's not the pandemic in that book is not our pandemic. And what happened, you know, it's very different. But honestly, it was an imaginative journey that um, gave people a way to you know, have some understanding of what we would go forward into. I, I mean, I was uh, felt, I kind of fell for you because I was really aware that you had just published a new book at the exact moment that everyone in the world was going to want to talk to you about your old book. But, um, you know, um, and maybe can you say anything about 
So what does the Glass Hotel have to do with the pandemic? Because in a funny way, I think it also does. It's interesting because I was just working on the TV pitch for the television adaptation of the Glass Hotel. And I was leaning in really heavily to themes of responsibility and culpability. You know, sometimes writing about your own work forces you to look at it in a much deeper way, maybe from a different angle than you would have before. There's so much in the Glass Hotel about cause and effect. You know, the the small mistake, which snowballs into the enormous mistake, which changes everything. And culpability and responsibility, which feels so resonant in this era where, you know, the tiny personal choices we make, like wearing a mask when we go into a supermarket or socializing in a backyard instead of in a bar, those tiny mistakes just matter so much and affect so many people. And I I feel like a pandemic forces you into an awareness of being part of a chain you know, in a way that maybe you don't think about so much in your day-to-day life. So yeah, I I think there's probably some resonance in that to our current situation. Yeah. I mean, I think I thought of that when I was reading it too. I mean, maybe because with weather, because a lot of it is about someone kind of coming to terms with, um, the climate crisis as well. Um, this idea of kind of interconnectedness and also like, what does it mean, um, to have what you do matter. Um, What does it mean? I think there was this moment in the pandemic, uh, especially when people were more afraid of um, contamination on things, you know, in the early stages, it was very much about that, not about the air. And you couldn't, I thought you couldn't go into a store without thinking as you took something off a shelf about every person that had been involved in making that available to you and you know ha- at what risk level and now were you at risk were they at risk and i feel like um there was this sort of um almost sinister kind of interconnectedness that the pandemic also um made us feel where um it felt like we were watching um, the invisible supply lines and the invisible, and, and we were also seeing um, this terrible toll and the tragic like loss of life. And so I'd been writing about interconnectedness in a sort of um, what does it mean to expand our circle of care? Like my main character, Lizzie, is one of these people who knows the story of everybody she passes on the street and has a million um, friends she's answering phone calls from. And when she first starts um, becoming more involved in thinking about climate, um, she sort of thinks, oh my God, do I have to worry about the whole world now? You know, I, uh, do I have to worry about that too? But that's sort of what it, what it felt like with the, uh, with the pandemic. Like actually there's nothing local anymore. Like everything is about everyone else. And while that's a sobering thought, I also think um, it's part of, what we are going to need to rebuild both from this disaster and from um, climate disasters. No, um, I don't know if it's true that things are changing and sort of ending, but I hope that it is. Um, And I hope that we'll soon be able to look on this period as a time that was and ended. And um, I want you to speak on... uh, how it felt for you as writers to work during this time, because I think that was a really interesting thing for, you know, not just 
professional writers, but all writers to think about like, what, did, what, what was writing like during the pandemic? Why don't you start Emily? Okay, sure. Um, so I live in New York City and the early days of the pandemic were pretty rough here. There was a period of time in early April when 700 people were dying just in New York City every single day. And what that means in practical terms is that the ambulance sirens never stop. And it's not one siren, it's two or three from different directions, you know, at all times. So I found it really difficult to work for the first few months, just because the sirens were kind of um, like deranging. You know, it was like, it was just really, really hard to focus. So I got a lot of reading done, which was nice, but it was hard to write fiction. But then I did start writing fiction. I picked up a project that I just kind of sort of vaguely started and was playing with and took it in this really far sci-fi direction. So yeah, I, I, I was actually able to be pretty productive after a few months, partly because the unsettling truth is that we can get used to anything, you know, and you do find a way to work even in a deadly pandemic. Um, and also partly because I was writing sci-fi. Now, my next novel is set largely in moon colonies and there's a time traveler in it. It's just, <laughs> and you know, what I was thinking about at the time was... I'm setting this thing on the moon because, you know, I was in lockdown and I was just thinking this has to be set as far away as humanly possible from my apartment. Like, you know, planet earth is too close. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you find ways of leaving your apartment in other ways, even during this time when we're home all the time. So yeah, work felt impossible at first, but then later I feel like the pandemic directly influenced the subject I was writing about. Hmm. Mm, I feel like I, I wish that I had thought to set a new book in outer space. That would, that would have been so too late, Jenny. You can, <laughs> I, want, I want to be so far from, um, from this world in this moment. I found writing um, during the pandemic um, almost impossible for a, a big part of it. I felt like um, it felt very much like, uh, you know, wartime. Like in the beginning, especially um, just my, my parents, um, I wanted them to stay inside. And so just, you know, trying to figure out getting food for people and dropping it off and doing everything um, like that and trying to just um, figure out new daily routines that accommodated it. What I mostly found though, that my, whatever space in my head is usually used for the kind of daydreaming that leads to fiction was completely um, lost and everything was about um, information seeking in a kind of like pattern recognition way. Um, I know actually from talking to Emily another time that when she was writing her last book, she went down all these prepper holes um, learning about, you know, how people respond to things like that. And I felt that way too. But for me, it was um, every day was just about trying to I mean, I started saying about three months ago, like one day closer to spring when we were going to bed <laughs> because it felt, it felt very tangible. And I, um, the projects I've done have been um, kind of outliers. Like I wrote an introduction to um, Mrs. Dalloway, which was about how that book had changed at different times I'd read it. Um, and I'm just now starting um, to really get into the new novel. And I think it's because I just didn't want to do a hot take on the pandemic. Like you said, I just... I didn't want to write a pandemic journal. I didn't necessarily want to write about the pandemic except in the aftermath. And so um, it took a little while. 
Well, um, we're starting to get a lot of uh, questions coming in from the audience, so I'll start to ask theirs, even though I will reserve the right to interrupt with mine, because I do still have a few. Um, so a uh, question for Emily is, um, you lived and wrote about Montreal, a city close to the questioner's heart, Joseph O'Hare. As an artist, did you find Montreal to be particularly nurturing for a writer? You know, um, the short answer is no, but I don't want to be unfair to Montreal. <laughs> so I, uh, I moved to Montreal when I was about 22 years old. I was incredibly naive. I thought I could get by with just English because I had never studied French. And uh, that worked out about as well as you might imagine living in Centre Sud. Um, yeah, it, it was a very difficult period of walking by anti-English graffiti on my way to work every morning. And I would not say I found the city nurturing because I spoke the wrong language. It, the city was closed to me. And that was my fault, not the city's. I should have realized that you really need to speak French there. So it was a, it was a difficult time there, but I, I really lay the blame for that entirely on myself. Are you Canadian? No. I am, yeah, oh, dual no. citizenship. How did you keep from fleeing back to Canada during this last- <laughs> uh, The border closed, so. <laughs> well, they closed you know, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I could have gotten across. You know, the thought occurred to me several times a day and still does. Um, it's hard, you know, I'm married to an American. Yeah. We own our house, which we love. We have this community around us. Um, it's not like life is fantastic during the pandemic in Canada. So yeah, the rational thing would be to flee the United States, but I haven't done it I think it, it was the pandemic plus whether Trump was going to be reelected, which had yeah. Me yeah, it's about a lot of investigating about if, if it was possible to move. Because yeah. both those things kept, I just didn't trust that the pandemic would ever be gotten under control. Mm -hmm. um, I, I still don't. I follow yeah. um, New Zealanders on Instagram and it's kind of masochistic, frankly, but yeah, like just realizing there are places in the world where COVID just isn't really a thing. It's kind of yeah. amazing to me. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to butt in with a question I didn't get to ask before I get to the audience questions, which is both of you immediately prior to the book just published had a book that was a true breakout, um, you know, which drew everyone's attention to your writing and was a huge, huge hit. Um, and in this case, it's uh, Jenny, Department of Speculation, and Emily, um, Station Eleven. And honestly, I totally remember the period in my life when I knew I was going to read the, this book because I kept hearing about it, hearing about it, both of them, you know. And um, and um, sometimes when that happens, you finally read the book and you're disappointed. Other cases, you read the book and you're amazed. And in both cases, I was kind of amazed. I'll say why, because for Station Eleven, um, I had so little interest in dystopian speculation or whatever, whatever I thought this book was, I really did not care about any kind of book like that. And um, God, the book charmed its way right through all my resistance to whatever genre it was supposedly in. And then um, with Department of Speculation, because I'm a memoirist, I was kind of like being told so much about this book, how it's a novel, but it's a memoir, blah, blah, blah. Like I was getting a lot of sibling rivalry with this book or whatever. And I didn't know, um, you know, so I thought, okay, well, what's the, what's the pretenses that are whatever. But, but when I read it, you know, I, it totally disarmed me. And um, 
I became a huge fan of that book and of you, and both of you in this case. So um, in both cases, it was uh, breakthrough books that I had some resistance to that um, broke through. So anyway, I know how, I mean, I don't know personally, but I know in, that it must be really hard to write another book after you've had a book that is such a big deal. Um, and I, as a writer, and I'm sure other people are interested, like, what is it like to do that? Well, I think it's funny. I, I was worked in bookstores uh, for years and I, I would hear about books, some books, and I would just think, I will never read that book. Like it would be a book that people would come in and ask for over and over again. And I would think I'm never going to read that book, no matter how many people tell me to read that book. Can you I'm not read this? Example? What is it? <laughs> uh, I'm going to read this obscure. Eat, pray, love. No. <laughs> yeah. But even, but more literary books that I just sort of snobbly thought were like middle brow books that I wasn't oh. going to read them. Just thought I wouldn't like. Um, and then it was, what was quite interesting to me was to become that person have written a, written a book so many people came up to me at my at my bookstore people who worked in the bookstore and they'd say I have to say I really was just thought I was going to hate this book and my friend kept telling me to read it and I read it I hate read it but I actually ended up liking it or something and I just thought about that whole um to me I will begin a book sometimes thinking that I've heard too much about it, that it's too hyped, that it's whatever. And you're right, sometimes that falls completely flat. But I'm, I am delighted anytime I read writing that feels alive to me. So if it ends up changing my preconceptions of, you know, I didn't know I liked something that was a dystopian novel. I didn't know I liked, um, you know, uh, so-called domestic fiction. Um, I feel like sometimes to me, that is just telling you even more about the power of language that it's, you know, I would never read a book about, you know, oh, it's like a writer in Brooklyn and she's mm. sad because her marriage is falling apart. Oh, no. You know, it's like, just no, mm. who wants to read that? But, but somehow I, I ended up writing it. And so okay. I felt like um, then it just comes down to how my how internet is messing up. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, so my, my first three books were published by a very small press, which is a nice way of saying that almost nobody read them. So the book tours I would go on, you know, it would be like the incredibly shady $69 a night airport hotel and like, you know, wherever. Um, it was so kind of hard scrabble. And like, I, I remember a book tour day for one of those early books where I spent the whole day on Greyhound getting from like Kentucky to Tennessee or something. And then Station Eleven comes along and changes my life completely. You know, it kind of rolls over me. Nothing's ever the same. And I can't tell you how surreal it was to go on Twitter and see people saying things like, I'm not going to read Station Eleven. It's gotten too much hype. I was just like, wow, <laughs> how did I become that author? Like, that's crazy. Um, yeah, so that is a real thing. And, you know, we do have real misconceptions about, not just you know, big books, which is a, you know, another way of putting that would be books with enormous marketing budgets, um, but also genre. I read a Western recently that I loved, this novel called Ridge Runner by Jill Adamson. And I, I probably wouldn't have read it, to be honest, because I don't think of that as being a genre I love. 
but I agreed to interview her for a bookstore event for, as a favor to a friend. And it turned out to be an amazing book and such an interesting interview. And I was asking her, you know, uh, what is it about the genre that draws you in? And she said, well, one thing I love about it is in a Western, there's always somebody who's just really competent. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. It's like, yeah, isn't that a nice idea? But yes. So, okay. So now that's happened. That's happened. How do you write a glass? I'm going to write an incompetent Western. That would be, yeah. I've got it now. Yeah. The Brooklyn writer goes to the frontier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What I want to know is like, how is it not, you know, what most people would think is that that experience of being, you know, people on Twitter or say, that it would be so daunting. And I, I just wanted, like, my question is like, so what, how do you get to, was it hard to get to the Glass Hotel or how did it feel to attempt, which, you know, the Glass Hotel has been really well received. So everything worked out fine. You know, and, but, you know, how did it feel before you knew that and when you were writing it? Um, it was it was hard for that reason. It it did make it a slower process than it would have been otherwise. I think um, you know More that thing I that that thing I mentioned earlier of just the awareness of an invisible audience, which I, I just never had before. Uh, nobody had ever cared before when my new yes, book would be exactly. done. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that that stuff can slow you down a little bit. But so I just into it, did it like did were you, like once you were in the groove, did you? let it go did it just Uh, no it stayed really hard it was a grind (laughs) it took it took a really it took twice as long as my usual average to write the glass hotel and none of it was easy is really the bottom line well may we all experience this problem you know um yeah that's amazing and interesting um let me uh return to these audience questions um okay it's a, a really broad question but um jenny what comes first to you as you're starting a book? The plot, the themes, or the characters? The plot, ha, 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 no. The plot comes <laughs> If only, if only. <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, for me, it's it's gotta be the voice and, and the characters, but also um, it's often, uh, as I was saying a little bit, it's, it's an emotion. So with department, um, I really wanted to write about loneliness, the loneliness that you have when you're actually solitary and the loneliness you can feel even when you've made your life with other people. And with this book, I wanted to write about dread, um, anticipatory dread, and um, and also in a kind of sneaky way about hope. So sometimes I start from there and then I do this thing where I read out from whatever I'm reading about. So if I'm starting to read about climate change, a few books later, I'm reading about the sociology of denial. And then I'm reading about um, what it means when people were uh, good Germans during World War II. And I keep going and going and going. And mm. I read as far away as I can from it so that I start to um, have little constellations of ideas begin. Mm. And, um, and meanwhile, I've been just jotting down um, sentences and, and things that that are running through my head. So it starts out of these little almost points of light that I slowly um, begin to constellate. So I don't know which one that is, but that's- that's Well, that's like the beginning of that uh, writer's room masterclass. I mean, that is like one of the most concrete things I've ever heard about (laughs) how to do it. Um, Really 
<laughs> I'm sure everybody's like this. Um, Emily, I guess this is the last answer that we'll have before we can end, but how do you feel? Is it plot, themes, or characters? Sorry, I turned off my mic. Um, it kind of all comes together at the same time for me. And it's kind of all in the revisions. You know, I don't write from an outline. So what that means is that my first drafts are always like catastrophic. Like they're, they're just incredibly messy. And for me, it's a process of trying to find the novel from somewhere within <coughs> the raw material of the first draft. So yeah, it, it all kind of, in my first draft, it feels like that's all kind of sketched out. Like nothing's really clear or very settled. And then it all comes together at the same time. Thank you. Well, um, you know, I'll answer for myself as a memoirist. There are no plots. There are no themes. There are no characters. There's just me, me, me. <laughs> yeah. I don't really have to think about all of that. Um, no, but it, um, it, uh, I think the connection between not, you know, memoir and fiction is voice. And so for me, like it always comes out of the voice. And I think um, in fiction, it does too. It's just that, you know, I'm kind of stuck with my voice. And in fiction, they have more access to other voices. Um, it's uh, really so incredible to talk to both of you and both of you together. And um, I guess we're going to end and go to the writer's room. Um, and in the writer's room, we'll uh, discuss <laughs> all kinds of technical aspects. Great. And here's Tracy Diamond to tell us about that here. Thank you so much. Oh, let me just say that Tracy Diamond is my former student. She's a graduate of the MFA program at the University of Baltimore. One of the, the I, I would say that almost the entire Baltimore literary establishment is the my former students from the <laughs> I feel that way sometimes. And I really <laughs> love this. So yes, anyway, my, my, my child, Tracy Diamond. <laughs> oh my gosh, Marion. That was hilarious. Um, I feel like we all stick around in Baltimore or we've been, we were in Baltimore before. Um, so it was lovely to have you here to moderate and Jenny and Emily, it was so great to hear more about your process and also hear about how you, your writing has been reacting to the pandemic. Um, and so, yes, we will be going to the writer's room next. Um, and Carla, I see you're on screen too. So I want to check to see, um, make sure that you have a chance to say something. I just want to tell you, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Emily, Jenny, thank you for um, making us really think about our next work, right? And just writing in particular. Um, thank you too for joining us in the writer's room. I hope you, um, anyone that's very interested in writing will um, join us for um, a, a deeper conversation about the work. Um, Marion, thank you for hosting and moderating this panel. We so appreciate you. Uh, be sure to step, um, be with us next week for um, Terrence Hayes. Um, starts at seven o'clock, same place, same time, and a writer's room as well. But thank you for tonight's events. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.